some of the Palmas other stuff, it's like, okay, yes, I too have seen movies, but this <laughs> this was like a good balance of like, yes, I get that, but you're also doing it in your own way. Just like the uh, the apartment scene with Sean Connery's character, another really tense sequence, feels very Hitchcock rear window, right? Like. <laughs> Welcome to Idiot Block, a comedic podcast critiquing, discussing, and analyzing the media industry through reviews, debates, and historical deep dives. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Idiot Plot. I'm David Yance. Joining me today, as always, are my co-host, Alex Overdahl. Fuck. <laughs> and Justin Neitzel. I think I'll have a drink now. Okay, we're, we're off to a, to a great start today, guys. Um, on today's episode, as you might have heard from Justin's quote, we're back to movie picks. Yay. And Justin has the first pick this go around. Justin, what did you have us watch this week? Uh, the Brian De Palma, The Untouchables. Yeah, so we're, we're, we're talking about all things Untouchables. I had a great time with it. I'm, I'm curious, I'm, I can't wait to see what you guys thought about it, too. Uh, but before that, we have some big ish news in the Oscars race this week, guys. I'm sure you guys have heard it's about The Oscar it. news, not the other one. But <laughs> that's what I meant. Um, we have some Oscar news coming up. The Oscars have announced that eight categories are going to be cut from this year's live telecast on ABC. Those categories are film editing, sound, makeup slash hairstyling, original score, production design, documentary short, animated short, short and live action short they will be aired in, or they, they will be put an hour before the big show and then they will edit it into the, to the live telecast um so so they'll be in the telecast but won't be live that is and i quote actually i'll just quote the, the academy president david rubin himself in his letter to the academy members in order to provide more time and opportunity for audience entertainment and engagement through comedy musical numbers film clip packages and movie tributes a change in the show's production will take place. Uh, he went on to add, we realize this kind of changes can prompt concern about equity and we ask you to understand our goal has been to find a balance in which nominees, winners, members, and viewers, viewing audiences all have a rewarding show experience. Unless um, they're in one of these categories. Yeah, unless they're in these categories. In that case, the highlight of your career, the hate and the pinnacle of, of film achievement that probably took you decades to get to doesn't effing matter. This is also be known as the Oscar. The, this is also known as the Oscars with random intercuttings of Dune. <laughs> <laughs> um, this isn't even the first time. I think they've tried to do this a couple times now. Yeah, I don't, I don't think they've ever done it, actually. Well, every time they, they even think about doing it, everyone goes, no, that's dumb. It's an award show. Why are you creating awards? Nobody cares about Glenn Close twerking. Like, and you know, it was, and and there was outrage when it was like, you know, when they're considering the small categories, like you know, the short ones, like uh, best short, best uh, animated short, like those categories. They've gone for like the biggest technical categories outside of cinematography. They fucking cut sound, original score, production design, makeup design. Like those are big categories that people care about, and those are really important. Yeah, it's and they're gonna they're going to cut original score and 
favor of big flashy musical numbers of the fucking songs and original score. <laughs> They're cutting original score to show you the full song and they think you care you would you care more about that and that's what you want to see, but you don't want to see which song actually wins. It's I mean, I'm not shocked to try not do this. The Oscars viewership wise have been going down for years now. Nobody cares. And they're trying to find ways to make people care again. This is not it. I'm no I'm no expert producer in live television production. I can tell you straight up, this is not going to fix anything. People don't want more sketches. If you just had a two hour block that was all the awards with an opening monologue, some musical numbers from the movies and an in memoriam segment and then done. I mean, the ratings might not be high, high as they used to be because I think that ship has kind of sailed, but they'll be better than the dirt bottom that they've been at. Yeah, because I mean, at this point, you're I mean, it's like they're trying to draw in people who don't care about the Oscars, but that's not going to make them want to watch the Oscars. You're just offending the people who want to see the awards because you're cutting awards and you're putting all this other shit in. It's like if the NFL felt the need to bolster its ratings by having like five concerts during the game. Like, if you're not going to watch football, you're not going to want to watch it just because they throw that in there. And it's the same thing with this. All you're doing is hurting the actual product that people are coming to watch. You're trying to get an audience that you don't have, but you're also pushing away the audience you already have. Right. It's not a great business strategy. It's going to do nothing but make things worse. I just, I don't know how this is going to work because I thought, if you look at like the reviews of past shows, I always thought that the sketches were always the most like derided parts of it. Mm -hmm. When someone talks about it's always this sketch sucked this musical number bombed. Well, it's, like, also, I, I remember, the, it's also the uh, people who win going on their speech for like five minutes. It's like, can we cut this? Let's go. Come on, we got see, more awards. That's why it should take so long. Because they give them like 10 minutes to give a speech. Especially, I think it was last year where like they would give certain big people like seven minutes and then someone goes up to win an award and in 30 seconds the fucking music starts playing. Yeah. And it was, yeah, and it was for categories like this, right? Like that's editing. You get like 30 seconds and then whoop you're out yeah, yeah it's this, this is sad like this is really this is i don't and it cheapens that it cheapens the awards to an extent you know it's like all of this stuff they've done like when they tried to introduce popular film and now they're kind of sneakily doing it again because you could vote on twitter for your favorite one you know and like they're going to talk about that at some point you know but like it's just cheapening the whole thing and now you're saying you know these technical awards are more important than these ones like oh we still care about cinematography we don't care about you sound and editing I, I think there needs to be new blood and people that understand what people actually want to see. I mean, it, I mean, the past broadcasts last year's I was saying because last year's was exceptionally bad with the with the whole changing order to try and prop up Chadwick Boseman blowing up in their faces completely. And but they changed the venue and everything. Oh yeah, that too. They just put it in a, like a fucking subway and clean and and kicked out all the homeless people. <laughs> and, and like, it's not great. Any any year where it should have been like a two hour little quick thing that year should have been it. And it was still long as hell. Yeah, because because we actually, it's right because you and I, Justin, we watched it together in person because we thought it was almost done when we tuned in because they were already, I think, at, at after cinematography or one of the ones that usually means it's the end. Yeah, then all of a sudden I was like, oh, probably going to be done half hour. Let's just finish watching it. Hour and a half goes by. What the hell is going on? 
And that's that, the other strange thing I've noticed about it too, which is probably going to continue. But not only like do they have too many of these forced bits and stuff that nobody wants to see, it's not evenly spread out throughout the show. You get like a solid hour of the show actually going at a good pace, and you're getting through the awards, and it's good to watch, and you think you're near the end, and then it just balloons into like an hour <laughs> and a half to do three awards. Yeah, no, no, I, I hate that it happens. It used to be what happened like 2009, I think, was was when that kind of started because mm. uh, I remember because I so I started watching the Oscars and then the first Oscars I watched on live TV was when Hugh Jackman hosted oh yeah I forgot he hosted it was, uh, yeah I can't remember what one that year I know I that watched was Dog Millionaire. Oh, okay yeah I watched the one after that I watched the one where Hurt Locker beat Avatar was and that Martin and Alec Baldwin I think so because that was an alright one or, is that, yeah, or like was that, that was, fine. was that was either Alec Baldwin and Steve Martin or James Franco and Anne Hathaway <laughs> <laughs> that one was not all right. <laughs> I think we that know why. Um, that one was really Was it bad. 2009 movie? Or you said Hurt Locker one? That yeah. was Steve Martin and Alec Baldwin hosted. Oh, okay, so it was, the, it was the all right one. Yeah, next year was Franco and Hathaway. That, that, one, that one was bad. That one was really bad. <laughs> Although, can we talk about for a second about how the Oscars actually had, like, in, like, 2015, a We Saw Your Boob song? You know, <laughs> that lives rent-free in my head, and uh, I, I can't believe that it doesn't get talked about more that he literally just in the middle of an award show talked about all the actresses in attendance who, whose boobs were shown on screen. Like, like what was Seth MacFarlane thinking? I don't think that would go as well now. No, God, no. Didn't go well when he first did it. That's yeah, true. I, I, I'm I, just surprised I, I, he didn't get more shit. Yeah, yeah cause people were like mad. If that happened now, he Family Guy would, would have been canceled the following week. Oh, like, that's really uncomfortable to watch that, honestly. I was like, okay. Do <laughs> you know what's really weird, though? People seem more uncomfortable when Eminem showed up and did Lose Yourself a couple years ago than they did at that, like in the audience. <laughs> like, like Billie Eilish looked appalled. And then, and then there's this whole halftime show, and that happens, and everyone in every home everywhere got hyped. Hollywood tries to act like they're holier than now. Well, I mean, some I mean, people. I, th- I think in that case, it was, I think people were just like, what? Well, because it was so bad. to do that in like the early 2000s. Yeah, he wasn't involved in like the Oscars. We don't listen to rap. Um, I don't know about that, man. Oh. It's hard out here for a pimp one best song that one year. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. But also, yeah, and I mean, Lose Yourself won, but mm-hmm. he what, he was supposed to perform that year and didn't show. And then, like, how many years later? Like, I mean, I obviously liked that they played it, but at the same time, it, when you think about it, it's really weird because he had nothing to do with that year's Oscars. I'm surprised he even did it. Well, just fused. What, 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 what I, say? I had a point to make about that. Yeah. I bet they also intentionally don't shoot, cut to the audience during some of the other bits because I wonder what everyone's reaction was when Glenn Close was twer- twerking last year. <laughs> everyone, was on their, everyone was on their phones. Okay, yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> everyone was on, on Reddit. <laughs> yeah, and they didn't have m- many audience shots that they could cut to. It was like, guys were cutting like, to the same people. They, they, like that, it was a bizarre, like, trial, like a, it was just really like some stuff because they had like one camera that was like moving throughout the audience. Oh, that was so bad. Mm-hmm. Be- be- because they would, be- and they usually had it where like most of the nominees that for categories were like put together, but on like the weird times where they weren't, <laughs> and the camera would, would like fly across the entire like subway station they were at <laughs> to find the one dude. Yeah, and they had to bounce like back and forth. It's like you guys didn't plan this out, like put the nominees at certain tables so you could just go down the roll, not go down the row, back up the row, back down. Or it was Soderbergh, they definitely cameras. didn't plan it. <laughs> 
Like it's a live broadcast. I've done those. You should have three cameras. Well, this year they're back in. The, this year the Oscars are back in the Dolby Theater instead of Union Station. Good. <laughs> live from In and Out Burger. Telecast. <laughs> live, live from the In and Out on, on Hollywood and Highland. <laughs> live from the Hollywood sign. Dude, no, don't. They would totally, they would totally close off that entire section of that street of Hollywood and Highland and make it into a giant award show stage. Don't even joke. They would totally do that and they hate like, that we that. have more people to kick out <laughs> all, all the families that want they to go see Encanto uh, uh, at the El Capitan would have to be forced out <laughs> it's, like all the, it's like all those people that went to go see the um, what was what movie were they watching oh uh, what book what Ava DuVernay did the film A Wrinkle in Time or whatever and all of a sudden everyone like the movie stops and everyone shows up that's right they did that with the Oscars they had like a bunch of celebrities walked over and like surprised that random showing it's like thank you for saving us from this crappy movie. Yeah. It's <laughs> not the projector. <laughs> Although, to be fair, I was watching a movie and that happened. I would be kind of mad for a little while, not going to lie. Yeah, no. It depends on, it depends if it was good. If, if it was a wrinkle in time, I would be happy because I would much rather see the, the like actual Hollywood people than continue watching that movie. Well, if it was like, if it was like, you know, fucking Batman, I would be like, fucking get back to the movie right now. Like, get Alex, off stage. You and, you and I saw movie at the El Capitan together. Um, I think it was Rogue One. Yep. Imagine if we're watching Rogue One and then Jimmy Kimmel just walked on stage halfway through the movie. Yeah, I'd be pretty pissed. Or like <laughs> Adam or something. Get off the stage! Like, that's a good movie. Like, with like Meryl Streep. Who, 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 who was all with him? Uh, I remember Gal Gadot and Mark Hamill. I don't remember who else. It was some decent names. I mean, Mark Hamill would be kind of cool. Yeah, but like if they interrupted La La Land that we watched before that, I would have been fine with that. <laughs> Because then they come in and like throw food at people and stuff. Yeah, or something like that. It was, I remember it being kind of bizarre. Not as bad as the uh, Alan selfie <laughs> oh, yeah, that, that, was... that has aged well at all. Oh, that was really bad. Some all the people in it, and that's oh, that's not great. He's canceled. <laughs> oh, a lot of people <laughs> Alan herself canceled. He's in jail. He is in jail. <laughs> anyway, this year's Oscars are March 27th on ABC. We are planning a sort of watch party event for the Oscars. We don't really have details on that yet. It will it will be that night for sure. But there will be a idiot plot live stream of the Oscars as of now. Um, but, but with more information on that to come. So 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 stay tuned. I'm sure there'll be lots of betting. <laughs> oh, guys, we need to do a prop. We need to do a bet for this on the actual ratings of the Oscars over under. It was last year's bad, uh, really bad. Nine <laughs> something million. Right? It was more than that, I thought. I thought it was like 14. Oh, yeah, that might be the... Yeah, I, I I just looked up like the initial one, but I could be wrong as well. That could have been the rating in a certain category, too. Anyway, we'll, four we'll million tons people. That's tons of punishments. I'm sure there'll be lots of salt. Uh, and that's just an attempt to make the Oscars entertaining and watchable for everyone. Because I don't think we're the best entertainers in the world. But us screaming about random stuff is probably still going to be 10 times more entertaining than whatever weird dance move they're going to make Glenn Close do on live TV. <laughs> I mean, you can watch us talk about stupid shit or you can watch them make Judy Dench twerk. It's really up to you. <laughs> Judy Dench flosses on live TV that <laughs> this year. No, they're going to do that now, right? <laughs> well, yeah, she has her all the other like uh, like, like they're going to go up there and do Fortnite dances. Her, Meryl Streep, Helen Mirren. 
Anthony Hopkins would, but I doubt he's ever going. Now he's ever going. To <laughs> I'll just zoom in when he wins right. another one. Anyway, we'll be right here, Oscar night, probably on YouTube. So stay tuned for that. But guys, I want to move on to our main topic today, which is Brian De Palma's nineteen eighty seven film, The Untouchables. Justin, you picked it. Why don't you? take us away why did why'd you pick it what's the movie about all that fun stuff well first i picked this movie because it was something you two hadn't seen so kind of what our picks thing was so we could get the other two to watch something that we have seen that we enjoyed and this movie is basically set during the era of prohibition in the united states i don't see how that would ever happen again hopefully not and we get to follow uh kevin costner's uh, agent trying to stop um, Al Capone in Chicago with all his corruption and selling booze and everything. And he puts together a small team, him, two other guys, and uh, Sean Connery. Yeah. <laughs> That's the Chicago way. <laughs> yeah. go home at the end of the night. I thought it was a real fun movie. I thought the, some of the performances were really fun and great. I really hate it when Kevin Costner is good in the movie. I'm just going to say it now. Yes! <laughs> I mean, he, he's one of the weaker performances of the film but he's not bad no i do think i do think yeah this is like i did some of his other like more famous movies i mean dances with wolves like it was his direction not as much as acting for this one i think this might be his best performance like it it feels very like there's a few layers to it and he kind of has a couple surprises in terms of like the changes in his character but i mean De, De palma makes this movie for me anyway i, I agree with that I, it's so tense i mean sean connor is great the performances are great and all but it's the it's the tension and the the interesting ways he he films some of the big sequences not that it would have been bad without him because i think the first big action scene that um at the bridge is kind of filmed a bit more like how you kind of expect a movie like this in the late 80s to be filmed and like it's fine but the two late action scenes the last two are fantastic they're wild and it's de palma going like all de palma all paranoid the tension like the hitchcock style almost like it's really great taking full shots from other movies like the like the carriage falling down the stairs and i was worried he was just gonna straight rip that whole sequence but he really didn't he kind of did his own thing with it but it was very a very clear reference but this kind of like some of De Palma's other stuff it's like okay yes i too have seen movies but this this was like a good balance of like yes i get that but you're also doing it in your own way just like the uh the apartment scene with sean connery's character another really tense sequence feels very hitchcock rear window right like the way it's like an actual set and like it goes in from the outside and you kind of see it that way um but he does it in a way that's unique and has his own kind of paranoia tension to it which can contributes to the whole you know how far are you willing to go kind of theme of the movie question for you justin are you there justin yeah i'm listening okay yeah you you came in kind of weird on my end so how did you watch this movie the first time Uh, I watched, well, I think it was on Netflix when I caught it. I'm, okay, because I, I said, because I've seen parts of this movie on, like, cable TV that my parents watch intermittently for, like, years. No, it's not, I didn't see this one on cable. I, I was browsing through Netflix one day, and I came across this movie, and I've heard good things about it. And I was like, well, I'm curious. It's got Sean Connery and Kevin Costner. And I was like, I'll watch it. And, of course, De Niro as Capone, which he's not in it very much. but I didn't cool. know that. He's good. But then I saw the one scene where he's like, I want his family dead. I want him dead. And I was like, oh, I remember seeing this. 
<laughs> there, there are so many quotes in this movie. Like as like they send one of yours to the hospital, and one of theirs to the morgue. Like everyone knows that quote. You don't bring a knife to a gunfight. Uh, one of my favorites is like bigger gun, gun. One of my favorite ones is like, "What do you do?" He's like, "I'm a tax agent or whatever." He's like, "All right, good day." He's like, "That's it." He's like I told you that. Yeah. Well, who would lie about being that? <laughs> yeah, I think there are so many great dialogue exchanges. Like the the script is really strong. Like the one I keep thinking about is the the first one Sean Connery is in. Like that's just such a perfect like nonchalant character intro and just like his back and forth on the bridge alone. Like you can tell he's like a good solid cop and is like what they need because he's just very matter of fact and very like old school. But Chicago is such a dark place that you have this good cop that Connery plays who just kind of is cynical. It doesn't want to do anything because you know he wants to survive and teams up with Elliot Ness and they just start wrecking shit. Yeah, because he's like, oh, this guy actually actually does want to like get this done and change things because you know people will say that and then they'll get bribed and then that's that. But he realizes like, okay, he's he actually wants to take down Capone. All right, this is what it takes. And yeah, all of the open secrets that you know they, that starts exposing like, oh, you actually want to? Okay, well you know just so you know they just bring this shit into like the post office. <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's the fun part with like uh, Sean Connery's character. He's like, you want to do this? They're like, what are we doing here? It's like liquor aid. It's like at the post office. It's like, dude, I know where everything is. Don't question it. Just follow me. They just, they just walk in. Four guys walk in the post office with shotguns. <laughs> Nobody reacts. To be fair, it was like 1920-something. I think that was pretty common back then. Well, yeah, it's, it's like, it's oh. An interest, it's an interesting setup seeing like how they build the team, right? They go to the, to the, to the police academy to get cops that aren't taken by Capone yet. They they have the one tax dude. They, they give him a gun and he's all of a sudden now, 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 now he's shooting people on the bridge. And drinking, what's the, what's the drinking the liquor afterwards. That, that shot, what's the line Sean Connery says? I'm trying to remember, like, because this is another good one, before they go to the academy and he's like, where you have to, like, find them. You know what I mean? Uh, oh, I know he has a lot of good lines at the academy. He's like, I don't want the yearbook answers, boy. <laughs> I Chuck Hunter. This movie is just so good. I mean, he won the Oscar, right? Yeah. Yep. This is this is what he won for. Which I mean, he does like the classic Sean Connery thing, but it's kind of like okay, yeah, about time he got one. <laughs> well, and and he's paired with Kevin Costner, and the two of them have amazing chemistry on screen. Yeah, they really play off so well. Andy Garcia's great. I, th- I think Charles Martin Smith, who who plays the, who plays the other the fourth member of the group, the little guy, he's awesome. Mm, yeah, I really liked him, especially on the on the, on the bridge fight or whatever he just like gets into the zone <laughs> the doom music kicks in and he's just he's just going which yeah speaking of the music i mean the score by ennio morricone is like i mean exactly what you would expect which is amazing and <laughs> i learned i knew this movie would be good watching the opening credits <laughs> This that 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 bass when that bass kicks in. And also, I mean th- that and the score during the tra- the train station scene just keeps you on s- edge. His, it's so intense, and it's some of his best. I mean, some of his best work. But he's so good that no one talks about it because he gets so much other classic stuff that nobody even talks about his score for this movie, which he was also nominated for. <laughs> I feel like the, the, the main theme I've been a little too much at times. Yeah, like, the upbeat one. I would agree. Yeah, yeah. like sometimes it's it's like why is this so 
loud. Why is this so upbeat? They're just walking down the street. Because <laughs> that was the one, like, during the uh, the bridge scene. Like, I I wish it was a more tense yeah. score instead of that, because I know nothing bad's going to happen when the score is that happy. Yeah. <laughs> Versus, yeah, when the movie kind of hits that extra gear in the back half where the score is always tense, and it feels like something bad can always happen, and it does, which I think was one of the most, not that I wasn't really enjoying it, but that's one of the things that I started to, that really kicked the movie to the next level, is that suddenly anything can happen, any of the characters can die, and everything is really tense. I was I was just enjoying it until the elevator scene, I where Charles Martin Smith's character, spoiler alert on an almost 40-year-old movie, um, get, get, get shot along with one of Cal Capone's guys in the elevator by Nitty. That was so shocking, like so out of thin air. And then the, with and then they go to the elevator and the blood has touchable written on it. Like, damn, that's so good. At that from that point on, for me, I, I was in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what t- took this from like a really a movie I was really enjoying. It was a good movie to like a great, fantastic movie. From that point on, I was just on the edge of my seat the whole time, not knowing what was going to happen. I think that's the one fall of this movie. Kind of takes a while for you to actually get into it. It's like right when that scene happens, you're like, okay, now I'm intrigued. What what what's going to happen next? Well, because because it, it, it seems for a while or that like it's cheesy, but not always like good cheesy. Like you think, oh, there's going to be the good guys and, and, and when every battle. Yeah, yeah, I've seen this one. But then they start to lose. It's like, oh, shit. OK, this is not what I expected it to, to be. Mm-hmm. There's actually stuff at stake here. OK, now I'm in. I mean, you get a little bit of that kind of slowly at the beginning of it, because when Coster first in- gets introduced to the troops and everything, he's like, I know you all drink, but I need you to stop now. I won't hold it against you back then. And then just little things. And then uh, Connery shooting the guy at the cabin to I didn't really like that. Get the other guy yeah. to talk. It's like you got he kind of shows that he's he's willing to go there, but you're like, but you're still playing a little like everything's gonna work out okay. And then when that twist happens, where it also it can get dark, it's like, oh, okay, now you have my attention. Yeah, because well, I was like, I mean, if anybody's gonna die, it's gonna be Sean Connery, and and no one else will die. And certainly the accountant is gonna live. Oh, okay, he's the first one who dies, and he dies in an elevator, you know, in a very unexpected way, and it just kind of completely shakes things up. Or with Connery's death, you think he's gonna make it because he gets the because what I mean that's some amazing camera work right the camera follows yeah. his, his would-be stabber into the apartment gets his, his attention and like okay you have Connery to drag a trap on him because Connery Connery's a badass but then he walks right into a trap and just gets blown away yeah I was like oh he's gonna stab him oh nope Connery was ready for him okay he's fine nope he's dead <laughs> call an ambulance but not for me for me <laughs> hey maybe it was for me I mean, th- th- this was a solid pick Justin I, I really enjoyed it and I I didn't think it was going to, to be quite honest with you. Um, I actually, yeah, I, 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 I kind of knew I was. This is one I've actually been waiting for an excuse to watch for a while. So literally, you, you picked it and I watched it the same night. <laughs> and I was like, oh, finally, my excuse to watch this movie. I forgot I wanted to watch this movie. And I but, was just in. But I did actually still end up enjoying it more than I anticipated. Why do you need excuses? Why not just watch it? Well, because sometimes you're like, oh, do I want to watch this one, this one? And then like there's the Oscar ones trying to catch up on, you know, there's like reasons to watch other ones. Well, it didn't help that this one wasn't on anything for a long time. That too. Well, like I said, HBO Max well, now has it. Like I said, when we were going to discuss our picks, I was like, when we first started doing it, this was one of the top ones on my list that I was going to pick. And it was just like, it wasn't on anything. And then when we were going through a list again, I was like, oh, maybe it is on something. Oh, cool. It's on HBO Max. Picking that. Well, it's a good pick because honestly, 
I miss the style of movie a lot. I agree. Yes. There's something about it with just, just the way that De Palma directs and shoots and edits it that just is just fun and inviting. Like like from the from the moment that Obitelsi when starts and and the score starts to pick up, like I just felt invited into into this movie. Like I knew I was gonna have have a, have a fun time. Good clear bad, I was gonna enjoy myself. I always it's love kind of, the kind of gangster movies from the like in the era of this the night during Al Capone and everything is so much fun. The suits are cool, everything just like everything kind of works. And it's got, I mean, from that era, it's kind of got like a few elements, like you know, it's obviously the neo noir, right? Yeah, do, and it feels very noir at times. It's also got, you know, De Palma's like new wave horror kind of vibe. like it's not a horror, but it's got that Hitchcocky intention, like and like those same techniques used in like a noir kind of movie. And well, because it, it just sucks you into that. You know, it's all very practically made. It's all, it's all like it has that a really captivating atmosphere to it. Well, because it has that sense of paranoia that Hitchcock was really good at and that Palm was good at too. Like with Elliot Ness kind of like, around, like he doesn't know who's dirty. He doesn't know who's the agent for Capone. Like anyone could turn him him at any moment. You see that particularly in, in the big final action sequence. I mean, not, not the final one, but the one with the, with the baby on the stairs mm-hmm. where he's he's helping this woman bring the baby up and just as as soon as anyone walks by him, he like freezes and he looks at him and he's, I mean, he's just waiting. He's just waiting for someone to try and kill him at any moment. And I mean, the, and, the number of like red herrings in that scene is insane. It's so intense and it does, it kind of, you know, it breaks the rules a little bit. You know, it's not the first person, but it's not the second or the third or the fourth. It's like you keep waiting. There's so many people who come and go that aren't the people that's coming. And then just at the worst moment, there they come. Well, and just the cinematography of that seat, that scene alone is just all over the place. Just with him looking over the side of the thing and the weird camera angles trying to catch everybody. I, a, really, I, I don't think I've seen many movies use POV better than this movie. It's one of the best, best examples of it, that's for sure. And yeah. at multiple points, because we talked about the, the apartment scene, that's full POV tracking. You've got all the POV shots in the train station. It, it uses it a lot and uses it perfectly. Or in the elevator, when he's, scan, when he's you know, when Sean Connery comes in and he's panning and then he sees his dead friend and then he sees the blood on the on the wall. And this movie also mastered the, the, the 80s technique of off-camera violence being just as as on camera violence. Yeah. I know mean, like, like like the exact moment of when to cut away to give that sense of dread. That's it. That's the thing about your mind is like when good directors know when to cut away from the violence because it's like your mind comes up with stuff that is so much worse than what would probably be shown. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, your mind just envisions the worst thing possible, really. And but it, it has to lead you and guide you to that point. And sometimes you you need to see almost you need to see some of it to know that the movie would go there if it did show you, but it's not going to show you. <laughs> a, good, a good example of that is when Al Capone hits the dude with the baseball bat and you see the first whack, but the subsequent 30 whacks, you just have the shots of the other people's faces watching it happen. The blood spurting yeah, around them. Mm-hmm, yeah, you just get that that splatter effect. <laughs> the freaking full Gallagher hitting the, hitting the watermelon. Great. That was, that is, no, it's not. I was going to say, 
that'd be a great introduction, but his introduction is him getting sh- shaved. Yeah, and how it, it, I think that's you can't do an Al Capone intro better than that because it shows both like his public persona that he put on that made him very popular, but also when he gets cut shaving, you get a little hint because obviously he's not just going to kill this guy in front of everybody and probably yeah, won't kill him this. anyway, but just how afraid that guy is and how he looks at him and he's like, oh, it's fine. And he's like, oh my God, I thought I was going to die. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. It's like, oh, you're going to die later, buddy. Happen. <laughs> but even that, like, that was a fun shot where just like the camera just slowly cranes down to them. Well, and I think a lot of ways that actually like humanizes Capone in, in the way that um, it, it seemed to me that like if you hurt him like, like that, right, he didn't care all mistakes happened. But if you affected like his business or his livelihood, then you're going to be underground. Yeah. And, and very public. Because he's, got, a, also he's got, the, got he's got everybody in his pocket, so he's not afraid of anything. Cops, judges, juries. Yeah, when they swap the jury. <laughs> and then you get the end to Chicago 7, but good. Just <laughs> 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 like, get, get, get that perfect scene, right? Like, what'd you tell him? Tell him his name was in the love ledger but his name wasn't in the ledger hmm? <laughs> <laughs> that, was so, that was so good too and again that's another thing they don't show you what he tells him but he tells you after but there's just something about that effect that just adds a little bit of the the mystery to it and then you you get a little extra tension out of wondering okay what's going to happen what did he say because it, it really just sque- that, that's why De Palma was perfect for it he just squeezes like every ounce of tension out of the script <laughs> yeah and David, David Mamet's script is really freaking good too it's got yeah, it's, it's the dialogue it, it, it has just this is fun energy to it right just from the beginning just gets right into the action well, really, also, all the characters are great well because it's also based on real life it's also just funny just like oh not this movie doesn't end in a big gun shootout it ends in a trial over tax evasion well because that's what happened right and that, and that's the genius of it too is like is is like the whole time elliot ness is like we're gonna get them for murder we're doing all this stuff trying to get that like, the big alcohol drops and this dude is basically figuring out how they can get him you know through tax evasion and then eventually they all realize oh god this is how we can we, we can get him behind bars yeah and they're like oh this this is really like the only way we're ever gonna get him and it's actually gonna work <laughs> although i one of the biggest points i've seen with this movie is just the historical inaccuracies but i also feel like this movie is not trying to necessarily be historically accurate it's trying to be fun yeah yeah i mean yeah it makes no like claims to it really because like elliot elliot ness is a real person al capone was a real person like most of the other characters are made up so like it's not really pretending like oh this is a real person but we just completely changed, you know. And well, it's, it's and not like this. Is, go ahead. I was gonna say it's not like the movie starts out. The these are based on true incidences or whatever. Yeah, it just starts. <laughs> it's like here we go. Well, because like Elliot Ness actually ended up having very little to do with the final prosecution of Al Capone, and he didn't kill Frank Nitty. <laughs> Frank Frank Nitty was survived was a, was was a real person and survived long after this event took place. He he took over for Capone. Here, so yeah, you're I telling think, me he didn't. Like... So you're telling me he didn't end up in the car. No, <laughs> no, no. He didn't actually throw him off a fucking roof. <laughs> that was pretty great, though. I did not expect that. But yeah, it, it's you know to a lesser extent because this movie kind of goes into like that myth making as the theme. But it's like we talked about with Amadeus, where it's like yeah, it's not really pretending to be accurate. It's you know it's trying to tell the story. These cops are legit murdering people. (laughs) 
<laughs> Sean Connery freaking would go to jail. Like he he straight up murdered that guy. Even the Canadian oh, guy's like, yeah. I do not approve your methods. That guy like, was already dead though, wasn't he? I don't think so. Oh, because I thought that's the point. That was the point of that scene. Is that like because that's the guy Costner shot? And oh, maybe he, he like, was. Yeah, that's yeah. why he doesn't bring him in is because he was already dead. But he props him against the window so they can't see that it's a dead body. Oh, okay. yeah, you're probably right. You're probably right. I, I thought <laughs> I thought he straight murdered a guy. Yeah, and then, so yeah, that's like the whole game of it is like he picks up this dead body and he's like at, quote asking him questions and then showing what would happen to this guy well and you get also you get the sense with this story too that it's really just about these people that have to kind of lose themselves a little bit in order to bring down Al Capone and save the city mm-hmm. well he even says after, after, he shoots him, after he says he doesn't like his methods he's like well you're not from from Chicago <laughs> yeah they gotta do a sh- Chicago style with with guns blasting and mustard on hot dogs I also don't understand why Brian De Palma is so like divisive among film fans. Like people either love him or they hate him. I don't really understand why. Like like he's perfect for this movie. Uh, we talked about earlier. Um, it's probably like close to a year ago now. We talked about Phantom of the Paradise and and his direction there. I mean he he's still young and he's not like as good as he is with Untouchables, obviously. But there's like a spark to it. I know people don't like that he seems like derisive. He seems to take a lot from other movies and other filmmakers, sometimes arguably too much. But he it's not like he, he's incompetent. I mean, he makes, I mean, he, he, he does tension better than a lot of people I've seen. He knows how to make tension fun mm-hmm. as well. I mean, he, I get it. He takes stuff from other people, but he also changes it up. And it's not like, it's not like shot for shot. And who's... There's plenty of film directors that take from a lot of different directors. So I'm like, I think he's a little more yeah. obvious with it, but. And I think it, it really depends for me on the movie of his. Like I saw uh, Blowout and that one, he's just like straight. There are a few things like he just straight kind of rips and I'm like, okay. But I mean, I'm not like one of the big De Palma stands or something, but I also think he's a really good director and has made some great stuff. I mean, Scarface is one of my favorite movies ever, period. Like that's a that's perfect direction. This has fantastic direction. Like, I think he might be so divisive just because sometimes when he misses, it's really rough. But then when he hits, it's really great. And some people will see, you know, some of his weaker stuff and go, oh, he sucks. But it's not. He's also made how like multiple classics. Well, I was also going to say it's like he takes stuff, but he also makes it fit within his story that he's telling. It's not like it's a shot for a shot's sake. He makes it work within the film. Right. And creates kind of his own thing out of it and creates his own kind of classic scene out of it like that the train scene you know it's got the it's got the baby carriage reference but really like that scene is its own thing and the dude has range too he's done musicals horror action drama like like he like he he can do it all basically mm. and he can do all i think consistently well he's also done spy movies with mission impossible the first one i completely forgot that was him <laughs> and, and, that's, and a, that's a good that's really movie good I, too, it's, yeah. it's not as it's not as good as some of the later ones but, oh, but he started the franchise off well. It's super say, nice. He started the franchise off. I mean, he got it going. The fact that there are sequels. And then like, there's two. <laughs> yeah. Two almost killed it. Like, <laughs> like you almost have to skip two when watching those movies because two is so bad. I mean, I I love Mission Impossible 2 because it's terrible. Like, like it's, it's comedically bad. I mean, I haven't seen all of it. I've seen like the... I remember catching it on cable one day. 
And all I remember is dub flying, them riding motorcycles and like jumping off and kicking each other. And I was like, what am I watching? <laughs> and yeah, it's like, I mean, and that's one where I'm John Woo is a great director, but ha- very much has his own thing and was a bad fit. Brian De Palma is someone who he definitely has his style, but he's shown that it's very versatile and he's been able to do a variety of things really well while still keeping to that. He, he knows how to deliver tension. And Mission Impossible is a really good example of that in the same way of the Untouchables. Especially the, the opening is very De Palma, like how all the team members dying and it's very like unsettling. Mm-hmm. Like like the, th- the way that things fall apart just as you think that, that they're working together and it falls apart very quickly and you're very like, oh my God, what's happening kind of thing. Like like that's very De Palma. Mm. And then, and then, of course, the, the, the scene where, where Tom Cruise is hanging from the ceiling. Oh yeah. <laughs> and he can't even look like sweat. That's super De Palma. I mean, it's been parodied in what all the Mission Impossible movies since then to some degree. Yeah. Yeah. Really, there are a number of kind of staples from that one, like that scene that keep getting referenced or used. And, you know, they all need now, you know, it's kind of this giant practical stunt. There has to be one really impressive one. There also has to be one that's something like that, where it's just super tense and the smallest mistake will mean failure. And it's kind of more of a quiet scene. And that's started with that one. Yeah. Like, like De Palma probably wasn't a good guy for sequels to that movie but if you want to start off a series he, he he's a good person to get because he, he's consistent he knows what he's doing he knows how to deliver tension um i, I don't think he'll probably ever ever, ever be in the list of all-time greats because he has plenty of stinkers as well snake eyes mission to mars but I mean, we, 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 which sucks i mean are we gonna start alex don't you dare say fan fan of paradise is a stinker or i will reach through that computer monitor <laughs> i was waiting for I'm that not gonna, i'm not gonna call it a uh, uh, oh no, I wouldn't call it a stinker. I'm not going to call it good, but I'm not going to call it like a screw you. Well, I'm going to. I was going to say it's like what director doesn't have it's his stinkers once in a while. It's like it's going to happen. You're not going to bat a thousand, especially yeah for someone as as kind of bold and risky as him. Because yeah, for every for every bad one, you're going to get a Scarface, right? Yeah, you know, you're going to get Carrie. You know, when you make these big risks like that, some of them aren't going to work, and some of them are going to be you know huge. And even Spielberg has his. Stinkers, so I mean, well, Spielberg <laughs> is different. He has stinkers when he doesn't take risks. That's true. That's what I know with him. Mm-hmm. It, it's when he tries to do stuff like BFG and and all and all that weird stuff that like that. He just that that's what doesn't work. Well, it seems like he's almost phoning it in, in in a sense. I mean, he's been doing that a while. So <laughs> has it's been a long time since Palma's been in a movie. It looks like his last movie was 2012, maybe. He apparently directed a really bad crime movie in 2019. Yeah, I see that out Domino. It's more like, yeah, when's the last time he made a good movie? It was fucking Mission Impossible. <laughs> it's a little depressing. That's weird that he that's what he's making now, or like like low budget. Because he had a few kind of high profile failures like Black Dahlia that you would think would be good. A Black Dahlia movie directed by De Palma and it's not good, but that's that's shocking, actually. He's got a murder mystery movie in pre-production right now, according to IMDb. That, that's not, yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it would be it would be nice for him to return to form. I mean, he especially yeah, like the eighties where he just made a bunch of hit movies. <laughs> well, that's the thing about the film 
some industry, right? You can have hit after hit after hit, but you just get a couple flops in in a row, and and your career just dries up. Mm. Unless you have dirt on someone like Zack Snyder or something, and then you get <laughs> chance after chance after chance. <laughs> unless 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 your your fans will literally bully anyone that tries to make the movies after you do. Yeah, and cyber bullies an entire studio into finishing your movie, which had no right being made. Careful, they'll come after you now. Yep. I'll bring Snyder it on. Snyder keepers are coming. I ain't afraid of you. Maybe I should be, but <laughs> I really don't care. See, I Zack say, Snyder's Justice League sucked. I'm going to say it. I will say, he's a nice guy. I, I do a life Snyder as a person, but I mean, did wonder what the, what the Palma superhero movie would actually look like. I'm actually kind of curious, to be honest with you. It'd be, it'd be wild. <laughs> you know who he'd probably be really good for? Like a Daredevil movie. I think so, yeah. Anything that's, that's like... You have to have that crime. You have to have that grounded crime element. Like, not like Batman. I don't mm-hmm. think he'd do good for He's Batman. too violent for Batman. <laughs> Batman the would Punisher, like... Uh, Punisher? Poison Punisher. Ivy in half. Um, yeah, but the, the Palma doing Daredevil, Punisher, Luke Cage, mm-hmm. or even something like Moon Knight or the Spectre. Hell, even like a John Constantine movie, probably. Or like, be- I mean, I feel like the, this movie gets... I mean, this, like, character gets, like, two much edgy internet hype but i mean like De palma doing something like spawn could work really well that would that could be good he yeah. could do good grounded spawn um spawn is weird spawn gets i've read some spawn and, and i've watched some of the old animated show spawn gets really weird really quickly like like 90s weird with all like the leather and chains and extreme <laughs> so I feel like yeah and I feel so like that's perfect for him do that a little bit <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I want well I mean now we're at the point now where Tom McFarlane will any, anybody else do a do a Spawn movie which is kind of insane to me and I think it's partially why that movie hasn't actually like like gone forward yet even though it has a studio and I, I forgot yeah they were making they were I thought they were pretty far along and like there hasn't been word in like years they, they seem to be they had um Jamie Foxx cast as Spawn. Jeremy Renner was cast as Twitch, I believe, but then nothing came of it, which which is kind of strange to to think. But like, it's been at the same spot that has been in for like for like two or three years now. I remember seeing the nineteen was seven Spawn movie, and I was just like, I don't know what's going on, but I am very intrigued. Yeah, well, the last update we got was from August twenty twenty one, where um the screenwriter of Broken City, Brian Tucker, was brought in to rewrite. Todd McFarlane's screenplay. Uh oh. <laughs> so, well, I mean, Todd McFarlane's an interesting guy. Like, good creative mind. Image was a revolution in comics. I mean, dude created Venom. He's an amazing artist, but he's kind of an odd duck in, mm-hmm. in, 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 in a lot of ways. And it's it's not surprising to me that his approach to a Spawn movie is taking a long time because because the whole his whole approach seems to be I get full creative control whatsoever. You get no say. You just pay me. I make the movie. Everyone's happy. And, and you that's get not nothing. Really, how it works? Like, like, like you, you can't just say I'm in charge and like people give me money. Like, if you're not, unless you're paying to pay for it yourself, what, what gives you that sort of leverage? Todd McFarland. <laughs> Why? Well, at least he's paired with Blumhouse. Who, if anyone's going to be willing to actually give him that level of power, it's Blumhouse. No one else would. Is that who Spawn is with, or Spawn. 
I was at Blumhouse. Okay. I mean, at least like, it was. Like, that's a pretty good match. So that's why I was like, I, yeah. Or is it Blumhouse? I don't know. I, th- I think it's Blumhouse? Question mark. Also, one that does the horror movies. De Palma also would have probably flourished in this age of indie horror, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He could make, like, he, he would get a lot of chances to do all, all of the weird shit. <laughs> I mean, like, Carrie, you know, Carrie was a big hit then. It would be a big hit now, and they would, he would probably get to make a lot more ones like that. I have yeah. 10 sequels by now. It's <laughs> interesting when you think about a lot of the big directors, a lot of them got their start in horror. Like, we don't think about that, but you look you look at De Palma, Ridley Scott, a lot of them, like their careers either, either flourished or died in horror. And even, what? I mean, Spielberg. <laughs> Jaws, I mean, is big, yeah. is big budget, but it's a horror. Yeah, James yeah, Gunn Spielberg. started in horror. Yeah, it's, it's where a lot of the big ones come from. Or if you look at, in the case of John Carpenter with The Thing, like he made one movie that didn't do that great it sunk his career for for years i i mean he still made movies but like if the thing was regarded back when it came out as it is now dude would, dude would be up there with ridley scott yeah for sure and it shows yeah it shows that sometimes you know one one that doesn't do well can thank you so far because i mean he had just he had just come off of doing halloween which create which like helped launch an entire successful genre and a whole franchise well the thing and with then, horror and, and is... i believe the Think was his first big like um his first big like, like studio movie where he, he he had like the full studio funding and when when that doesn't work on your first go it's hard to take control and, and get stuff going after that. I mean, it's amazing that Spielberg's even going considering how much problems he had with Jaws. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it made money and really oh, at know. the end of the day, if it makes money, I mean, I mean, I mean, Jaws Jaws is a whole other animal because that basically created where we are now with with movie market stuff of like the of the big day one worldwide release of the tie-ins on everything like like it started with jaws which is weird to think that jaws is where it all began but it, but it really is yeah it started the whole summer blockbuster and it's actually a good movie not just a summer blockbuster yeah <laughs> but it's interesting to think back then like like movies didn't open everywhere at the same time like up until jaws hmm. it, would, it would open in new york and la and then slowly branch out over the course of months yeah and, and even like yeah just like and the next year too they're the whole pattern of how movies come out in terms of awards too because the year after that was deer hunter and that started the releasing in december waiting a couple months and doing wide release at the start of the next year so before that in jaws everything looked completely different <laughs> yeah like and and uh, i mean i mean like my parents were alive for that like like the whole film industry changed with that and, and a lot of the directors that were kind of in both periods some flourish and some fell. Mm-hmm. I mean, you mentioned Deer Hunter, Michael Semino or Camino, however you pronounce it, his, his name. I mean, he made Deer Hunter, got big, made Heaven's Gate, and then... Was never seen again. Yeah, <laughs> and then disappeared. It, it only t- takes one flop. At least in some cases, only t- takes one flop. I mean, we're seeing with Heaven's Gate and even going back to Kevin Costner, stuff like Waterworld, a lot of those big flops get reevaluated years mm-hmm. later. And and everyone's oh, yeah, different. you mentioned the thing too, you know, that's yep. now regarded as one of the best horror movies ever. And at the time it was a flop, so that's you know, do you get that period of reevaluation? Yeah, so some would say something about Waterworld positively in the last month or so. I mean I I, I don't think Waterworld like I, I I've seen Waterworld. I, 
I don't think it's a masterpiece by any means, but it's it's not a bad movie. Honestly, it's quality wise at the same level as most MCU movies, at least a lot of like the lower mm-hmm. tier ones. It because it has the same exact issues. It it has really good special effects, really good action sequences, but a garbage script that Kevin Costner butchered. I, I mean, Kevin Costner is the reason why that movie is not very good. Because he basically seized full creative control halfway through production and most of his de- de- decisions were bad. He, he, you hire any, anybody else to be in that movie and produce it and, it, and it's probably not going to be as bad or as it was. And I think, and Alex, you are you are, you are a big fan of Heaven's Gate. I think you, you'd mm-hmm. agree with me too. Like, Waterworld Heaven's Gate had the same issues where the press almost seemed to want both movies to fail and basically went out of their way to kill them. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that was the case with Heaven's Gate is it was, I think, legitimately tried to hail it as the worst movie ever because of Michael Cimino, because he had already kind of had this reputation, this negative reputation because of the production of that movie. And they were kind of just ready to dump on it. Well, do you know what they called Waterworld? Kevin's also the Gate. worst movie ever. Oh, Kevin's Gate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, 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 they named it Kevin's Gate and Fishtar. And it has that reputation even, you know, because I've talked to my my parents about that movie who both like Kevin Costner and other things and like Dances with Wolves and, and other Costner stuff. But, you know, they think it's one of the worst movies ever and I don't even know if they've seen it. <laughs> but it had that reputation right away, right? It's just like yep. when that's in the press right away, this is one of the biggest disasters ever. Boom. It's just known as that. Yeah, because people hated Waterworld just because it made, it's going to cost a lot of money. That was the only reason really why they seemed it's gonna cost a lot of money, and and they wanted it to fail. It, and yeah, like it was a flop. Didn't did not want filmmaking to transition to 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 what Waterworld was trying to do. But now the film critics only want Waterworld type movies, and Waterworld even did stuff all practical, which you don't really see today anyway. Mm-hmm. Even even though even though I think at the time Waterworld was like the highest costing movie of all time, and now it's the cost of your average blockbuster. Kind of funny. I would probably say. I I could be wrong, but it also seems like we kind of gotten that recently with critics wanting a movie to fail with Tenant, I feel like, at times. I mean, yeah, kind of. Yeah, because some people didn't and still went like, yeah, this is a pretty good movie. And there were some legit complaints, but there were a lot of negative reviews that were solely for that purpose. It didn't work at like the same level, but I think, I mean, there are still sometimes examples of that, right? Like, I I mean, I feel like the Punisher TV show was one that there were a number of critics who just kind of wanted it to fail. I remember that. So that so that that still happened. I feel like because there are so many, I guess this is one positive thing because we've talked about how there are too many critics that artificially pump up scores and you get like 98% because there's like 400 reviews. But one positive, I guess, is that the top critics don't have that same power to just, well, I don't like Michael Cimino, so I'm going to tank this movie. No one individually has the power to, you know, I mean, to tank a movie yeah. anymore. That's because film film critics like people don't listen as much as they used to. It used to be, if you wanted to know, know if a movie w- 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 was good, you either had to know someone who had seen it, or you had to look up a review, and so it carried a lot more weight. But now, literally, any within anyone can be a film critic. Hell, we're film critics right now. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you can just look up your your favorite one that you normally agree with, and go like, oh, okay, I'll go see this. It's not like you know the New York Times gets this amazing, terrible quote about Heaven's Gate that everybody tries to one up and then suddenly uh, no one's going to go see it. I don't know, man. You, you still see some some r- r- reviews try and be snappy, snap 
happy insults. And so, sometimes it is. I mean, that that happened with cats. That was that was pretty fun. <laughs> the worst thing to happen to cats since dogs. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of want to talk about Kevin Costner a second. Oh, are we, we are going to go here. OK, <laughs> well, I mean, we have the time. We're on the subject. Who knows if we're ever going to have another Costner movie again? <clears throat> we'll make sure it happens. Don't fucking tempt me. <laughs> don't tempt us with a good time. Um, well, I say Kevin Costner is like the ultimate mom actor. <laughs> I don't know hey, what it is. Don't leave the grandpas out of it, too. <laughs> well, they can but it reasons. is the mom. It really is the mom. Grandpas love him for like the historical stuff, like the Westerns, like Yellowstone now. Holy shit. Mm. <laughs> that, 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 that show is huge. Um, like I, everyone that watched Longmire migrated over to guess, Yellowstone. Guess who's, guess who's mom keeps talking to him about Yellowstone in 1883. <laughs> <laughs> See, my, 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 my parents don't watch Yellowstone. My grandpa does. But guess what movie my mom had, had to put on every damn time it was on TV? Robin Hood. <laughs> oh. <laughs> like all, all of the time. Freaking BBC America played that goddamn movie every weekend. And I had to watch this part of it every time it was on. What, you don't like and him it's not, losing it's not a good movie. It's really not. You don't like him losing his accent halfway through the movie? It just gives up? No, I mean, the freaking Mel Brooks Robin Hood Men in Tights is a better movie than Robin Hood Prince of Thieves. Yeah, Probably. that's when they just made a, a bunch of money and became like, you know, somewhat w- popular, even though, yeah, I don't know anybody who really loves it. I will, say, I will say Alan Rickman <laughs> does say Robin Hood Prince of Thieves at, at times. He, he's tried his best to save it. Well, the problem is, is, is Kevin Costner, he's not a terrible actor, but he's also a pretty, like, plain one. He, mm-hmm. he, he doesn't really have a ton of range. And and I think the bigger issue with his movies, especially when you get stuff like Waterworld, is he wants to direct even when he's not the director. He wants that full creative c- control most of the time. And that, especially when around the, the Robin Hood uh, dances with wolves, um, Waterworld era. And that sometimes sank movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's why, honestly, like, I do think, and I'm a little surprised that he didn't just direct more, right? Like, why didn't he just direct more movies? But he kind of wanted to get the best of both worlds. But I do think, I mean, he's a solid actor. He doesn't, like you said, I mean, he doesn't particularly have range. He kind of plays Kevin Costner. But that's not always a bad thing. And he's, I mean, he's good at it. You know, JFK, uh, Dances with Wolves, he's pretty good. Although that's more his direction kind of carrying that movie. But he's had enough, you know, solid performances. I, I, I think he's pretty decent. He's a safe choice for a particular role you want filled. Yeah, if you, if you want the morally solid dad lead, he's got you. <laughs> or if you're making any sort of sports movie, he's the coach. Yeah. Oh, he's definitely, he's absolutely the coach. Or it's a Western. And or the general need, manager or whatever. Or it's a Western and you need a firm um, moral center or firm lead. Who looks cool, who, who looks cool in the cowboy hat? <laughs> but yeah, I think, it, you know, and I think Untouchables and Dances with Wolves are kind of the two where he shows like a little more complexity in it where there's other aspects to the character and they're kind of struggling. But ultimately it does still feel very Costner. I have to give a shout out to Man of Steel uh, for Kevin Costner giving us one of the most unintentionally funny <laughs> character deaths I've ever seen in the movie. Hold down hand. Which is Kevin Costner being consumed by a tornado for no real reason. <laughs> <laughs> to try and save a dog from the car. See guys, we need him to die, but you know, what can we have him do? Although I remember tornado. when they announced that movie 
movie and I knew, I knew right away that Kevin Costner was going to be Jonathan Kent. I'm like, they're going to, they're going to go for him. I mean, they literally never use him, but like theoretically he is a good fit for that character. Yeah. Like, like, like he, he has that Midwestern dad vibe, that Midwestern <laughs> farmer dad vibe because he's played that every fucking movie. Field of Dreams. Wasn't that him? Yep. Yeah. Like I said, he's, he's just a, the postman. He's, he, he's a safe choice for like an ordinary dad role. Oh, that's right. He has a band because he came to the Minnesota State Fair uh, last year. I saw him at a subway once. Wait, really? Yeah. <laughs> No, I was. This is when I was in elementary, and we we went on like a huge family trip to like the the Dakotas and Wyoming and shit. And, and this was like in the early two thousands. So and like I literally like just seen Dances with Wolves for the first time. And yeah, we were at a subway, and like he was just there in sunglasses getting a sandwich. Did I really say well, anything? I didn't say anything because I was like, oh. And then like my parents were also like, yeah, that was definitely him. But like nobody really paid any attention because it's you know it's the Dakotas and Wyoming. Everybody just goes about what they do. Yeah, honestly, Kevin Costner in sunglasses probably looks like 50% at least of all men in South Dakota <laughs> in sunglasses. or Wyoming. The problem is he's not old enough. <laughs> you could tell it was him because at this point he wasn't like 80 years old. So it's like, okay, he's probably not a local. I mean, it is interesting to see because because his career, in my opinion, like it's kind of collapsed. It, I would say that was true if not for Yellowstone and stuff now. But he's still, he's kind he's still of having a comeback. TV. He's, he's still like went to TV because the movie stopped. I mean, he's successful on TV, but True. he went because his movies were failing left and right. Well, I mean, you make Criminal where he's like the lead action star. Like, what do you expect to happen? Yeah, like three days to kill. And it's also, you know, there he can, he actually get, he can also get the creative power he wants, you know, creative insight into it. He can be an executive producer and act in it. And in TV, that works fine. Like, I watched half those in McCoy's, which is one of the most okay TV series I've ever actually watched. Like, like it's just it's so okay, and the fact that Kevin Costner has to play the, the a good guy of it, even though his character in real life was not a good guy. His name was Devil Ants Hatfield. There's a reason why his name was Devil Ants Hatfield. <laughs> well, it see, wasn't another he was a nice he's guy. A, he's always got to be the good guy, too. Yeah. Has he ever played a villain? Yes, uh, actually. Kid, has he? Yeah, well, I kind of, well, like, in, you know, he was the um, lead character of the film, but he was a serial killer. Yeah, but William Hurt was, like, the bad guy in Mr. Brooks, though. Right, yeah, so he's not really, like, a good guy in that, but there is a bad guy in Mr. Brooks, but yeah, he is a serial killer in that movie, so he's not a good guy. That's about as close as I know. <laughs> okay, guys, final thoughts and scores on The Untouchables. Justin, I'll start with you, because it's your pick. Final thoughts and then your score. Uh, I really enjoy the movie. The tension's done well. Um, the cast is great, and I gave it a four and a half out of five. Interesting. Probably, probably a little high for you guys, but I, I don't know. I enjoyed this movie, and I always... I can see enjoy watching it. Alex, how about you? I, I had such a good time watching this. I mean, it, it really was a very solid movie in the first half, then the second half, it just kicks to a different level with the, the tension and paranoia, and the cast is fun, the dialogue's great and snappy, all the characters are interesting, no matter how much screen time they get, they all kind of pull you in, and the direction is just fantastic, especially in kind of the, the big tension set pieces. I have it at four out of five, like a very solid four. Great movie with definitely recommend to anybody we stand kevin costner <laughs> I, <laughs> i'm at four right now um 
four stars out of five. I like the movie a lot. I think there's some parts that are a little too cheesy, a little Better too burn. over the top, um, but not that. enough where it truly distracts me from them. I, I like I still have fun. I still enjoy it all the way. Like like you said, Alex, the, the back half really is at a whole other level um, and some good performances, good direction. Like it's a, it's a really good movie. I think it also adds like a nice it's a nice rewatchable movie you can throw on in the background too. Oh, I would have I would happily watch this again. <laughs> yeah, like, like it's one of those it's one of those movies that thrives on cable because you can literally tune in at any moment. Well, it's it's also nice because like it's under two hours, so. Mm-hmm. I, I, I do like that too. It, Give it, me it more concise like, like, under two hour movies, please. Thank you. Well, it, it doesn't feel short by any means. No, it, feel, it feels perfect length. Anyway, that's our thoughts on the Untouchables. Let us know what you think about the movie. What do you think about our thoughts on it on the comments on YouTube or on our social media with our Facebook page? Um, good pick, Justin. I, I had fun mm. with that. We'll see what me and Alex come up with for ours. <laughs> <laughs> what's going to happen with that? We we'll have to wait till next week to see what happens there so thank you so much for listening to this episode of idiot plot don't forget to like and subscribe to us on both youtube spotify and all other podcast platforms and get to get in touch with us on social media too we want to hear your thoughts on the episode for justin and alex i'm david yanish thank you so much for listening and we'll see you guys next time Thanks for listening to Idiot Plot. You can find us on Spotify, Anchor FM, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe and hit the bell to get a notification every time we drop a new episode. Also, follow us on Facebook and Letterboxd. The links are in the description.